This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Radio. One of our favorite guests, Rob Wolf, is back. This week he entertains questions about cholesterol, the fermented food craze, and killing animals with primitive tools. Here are our latest 22 Jack Street updates, Luke's submission of the term bulkemia to Webster's Dictionary, and Rob's advice about leaning and gaining that probably would have been helpful about 15 weeks ago. Finally, Rob reminds us that he is a better person than us in nearly every conceivable way by casually mentioning that he holds a world record. To find out what, you'll have to stay tuned. Here's a hint. It's not hot dog eating. This is episode 94 of Power Athlete Radio. Power Athlete Nation, what's up? This is Denny. I'm here with the Power Athlete Coaches for another exciting episode of the premier strength and conditioning podcast known as Power Athlete Radio. Yeah. Woo! Number ah! One. One bad jokes, quotes from 80 movies, <laughs> and what well, we got relevant strength and conditioning talk. Well, Joining us, returning <laughs> guest, is Rob Wolf, the man. What's up, Rob? Not too much. Just standing here in my underwear since Callie made me turn off the uh, <laughs> video. So. Me too. Immediately yeah. after that, I stripped. Oh, once, you let the, once you let the boys out and they can play, it, it kind of like you can your voice. You can think better. It's a little bit more simple, <laughs> right? Well, Rob, you, know, you can if you, you air can cue that it, video any time now if you want. Now I'll, that you're pantsless. I'll drop it in every once in a while, kind of like Fight Club style, where people will be like, oh, God, and they don't really know what happened, so, yeah. Well, you know, now that Robbie's up to his fighting weight of 172 pounds or right around 7-8% body fat, it might be actually kind of uh, exciting to see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. I'm, I'm a little upset that I don't get a morning selfie of Rob in the bathroom. Uh, 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 well, you know, usually um, my uh, uh, data limit is taken up by John sending those to me. So yeah. I'm really happy the opportunity to return the favor. I was I was gonna say just hope you're not on like a selfie group text with uh, John, Luke, and uh, you know text because it, it's it's getting nasty as of recently. Yeah, listen, I want to let's hijack it and give a little Jack Street update. We are how long into this program? Are we? Twelve weeks, yeah. Uh, I feel like we've been been on twelve weeks for three weeks now. It's been a long time. Thirteen weeks, I think. So for people who don't know, maybe this is their very first episode listening. Which is would be crazy. Uh, John, Callie, and I, along with Tex and two other of our interns, Bobby and Levi, and I guess Ashley as well, my girlfriend, are on a 20-week challenge or 22 weeks. We're calling it 22 Jack Street to either gain 20% or lose 20% of our 10%, 10 of our initial body or weigh-in. And what that ended up being for me was 20. We call it 25 pounds for me, Bobby. Tex has to put on 20 pounds. John has to lose 30 pounds-ish, right? Yeah. And then Callie had to lose 15, 15 16, pounds. Yeah. And then Packy, my girlfriend, had to put on 12 or 13 pounds. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Really. No shit. Uh, 
But the big thing here is the change of training stimulus for us in the sense that we're doing a lot of isolated stuff and working on some machines and cables, which is legit. It is awesome. So I well, waited. Uh, part, part of it started because a lot of these guys, uh, you know, and Rob will identify a little with this, you know, kind of, you know, grew up in the training deal in terms of like, you know, like lose like sport performance for football and then got into CrossFit and, you know, functional movements performed at high intensity was, you know, was really the, the mode. And I remember... Um, you know, talking about how to put on muscle mass. So when we go to the seminars, uh, you know, the whenever you know we start talking about bodybuilding, people always love to poo-hoo it, and I'm like this. I'm like, I, I know it's weird getting up there and posing in a set of like, you know, fucking. What I'm standing in. I was gonna say <laughs> uh, the type of underwear that Rob Wolf wears on a Saturday night. You know, painting themselves up with some like with skin dye, and getting up in front of a, other strange narcissistic people and having them cheer. But one thing that bodybuilders have done very Sounds. well is they have worked to create larger human beings, and they've done it better than anybody. Mm -hmm. So a little focused hypertrophy work, and if you have a 135-pound kid that wants to be 160 pounds, you, you better know yeah. the fuck a little bit about hypertrophy and how to put it on and take a page from the bodybuilding. So um, these guys had never done any classic bodybuilding consistently. Stuff, consistently. <laughs> so we went over and you know went to a, a bodybuilding gym and joined up that has, you know, leg extensions, hamstring curls, and cables, and all the other fucking accoutrements that are, you know, mm -hmm. that you wouldn't find at our gym. So we've been doing this program, and it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see just the, the physical changes, both in Luke and Callie. I, I don't get to see Tex on a regular basis, so I only get to, you know, look at his uh, my fitness pal and see how he's doing. Yeah, so I weighed in at 218 initial weigh-in. And I've been I've been on a, a, a standing call with Tex and Bobby who are also bulking. Uh, two eighteen, I'm up to two thirty eight. Twelve weeks in. Nice. Damn. And then um, uh, what do we got, Callie? Where are you at? Two. Uh, I started at one fifty one. I'm at one thirty eight right now. Mhm. Mm and then John. <laughs> John, where are you at? Uh, I started at two ninety four, and I'm in the high two eighties. Like, like, what's that mean? 294? No, no, I'm in the high 288. So, so I've lost so, six pounds. So you... <laughs> it's complicated. And then tax... But the, the better part is uh, I leaned out and have lost body fat. Yeah, for sure. I think I've gained muscle, which I can't really figure out because I'm not eating enough calories to put on muscle. And, mm -hmm. yeah, that's... Robbie, that's when I hit you up, and I'm like, I think my blood sugar is high. It's keeping weight on me. And so uh, I was like, you know what, maybe I need to put more fiber. Maybe just eating. We, but, yeah. but, but but part of the other thing, too, with this and what, what people are going to laugh about is uh, we all selected different diets. Mm -hmm. So Luke and uh, Bobby and Tex are following the bulking protocol, which is, um, you know, like 20 calories per pound of body weight. And they're doing... Isocaloric. Yeah, it, it's basically isocaloric, so it's a 33 On, tra on hard training days. On training days, and then the off days, it's a, it's a ketogenic deal with uh, constant calories. And then mm -hmm. for me, I'm doing, uh, a, uh, I, I'm doing the anabolic diet, so I've been doing five days, obviously, ketogenic, and then uh, a carb refeed on the, on the weekends, and Callie has been doing a 40-30-30 weighted measure. Just, yeah, and just now I'm transitioning, actually increasing my calories yeah, um, she was at what, like 900 calories a day? No way, no way. I was at, I was between like 1,200 and 1,400. And now I'm increasing them, so I won't lose any more muscle because I've lost some muscle. What's interesting, and this is what I've noticed at least about the anabolic diet and doing this, is uh, I've lost body fat pretty 
pretty good amount of body fat, but haven't necessarily lost scale weight. So, I mean, there's something to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. training in that, uh, you know, like that anabolic diet. I mean, there's something really interesting with it. So I, I, um, I actually just got hit on a question on the carb backloading and the uh, carb night. So I had to read those books cause I didn't know enough about them. It turns out that the carb nights actually, uh, uh, kind of a, one of the adaptations of Marl's program. So we have right. Marl on the, on the podcast, and Rob and I talked about this for a long time. But, um, you know, and then uh, the best is Doc Parsley has also been on this ketogenic deal. And when I talked to him about it, he's like, man, maybe that's the way I should go. So I think I got Parsley going and uh, do the carb refeeds anabolic style. So You know, what? what one question, then a, a comment. Callie, uh, how, how many grams of protein were you doing when you were at this low ebb of the calorie intake? Uh, I was doing uh, 30% from uh, protein, so I was, I, you know, whatever that comes out. How, how many calories were you eating? Uh, about 1,400. So 30% would be roughly... T- yeah, you do the math. 450 calories. to two. Yeah, about 100. Yeah, I, I, that's okay. probably like a little on the low end. Um, I'm definitely like... You know, I, I, I think part of it, too, is just as a result, like, of uh, sort of my lifestyle now. I, I I bike to work, and I think that that has, you know, eaten away a little bit at the muscle, and I can't, like... Yeah, you're not as strong as you used to be. No, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. If you're going to uh, calorie restrict someone pretty aggressively... Uh, if there's ever a time, like I think there's two times when you could go really, really aggressively on on high protein intake, like a pubescent kid who's you know completely unadapted, um, they're just going to so like Callie's boyfriend, like basically <laughs> Callie's boyfriend, uh, or if um, two years younger. If oh nice, good for you. You know the other the other side is if somebody's really calorie restricted like uh, probably the most effective way of uh, uh, fat loss is a protein sparing modified fast where the uh, huge amounts of protein like uh, upwards of a, a gram and a half per pound of body weight sometimes is is how high these things go and then uh, some fibrous twiggy stuff and then no added no added fat and this is a short-term run like you're not going to be able to run this thing a, a long time but you can get some really shocking uh, body fat loss due to the severe caloric deficit, but you tend to maintain muscle mass, like you throw in a lot of branched-chain amino acids, uh, strength train, hitting each body part, you know, each each main muscle group uh, upwards to three times a week, not huge volume, but just enough stimulus so that you're you're uh, pushing that c- catabolic signaling from the low-calorie intake, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pushing it away as much as possible. So, yeah, the, the 100 grams protein, I w- I'm, I'm not surprised that that plus calorie restriction would peel some muscle mass off you. Yeah, and, you know, it has, but um, the reason I kind of came up with that split is because I, I would say that I was eating way too much protein and fat before and very, very few carbs. And so I wanted to do something. I wanted to have a macro split that was different and was going to help me um, just if I was going to be in caloric restriction I wanted something you know that was that was outside of the norm I had already sort of like I was already super conscious of what I was eating but I was more on the end of like uh, you know like I haven't earned my carbs I always sort of felt that way well the fact of the matter is that like bodybuilder training when you're doing like three hour long sessions you're even you're doing steady state cardio or you're biking to work or whatever 
I mean, I could not function for 22 weeks or as far as I have and lost the weight without that 40% carbs. And I'm going to start making the transition to a little bit more fat and protein and fewer carbs. But um, I think like that's sort of what I needed. I don't know if that makes sense to you well, from like a scientific yeah, standpoint. I, I, would, uh, I would keep the protein high and the carbs where you can get your performance and then uh -huh. actually uh, keep the fat relatively low. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, personally, yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for me, what I was doing was I bumped up the protein uh, over, like, you know, I think I was eating somewhere around 350, 375 grams of protein. And that was part of that, you know, gluconeogenesis where it was converting in. So it's like I was getting glucose from all the protein and then eating the fat. And then what's nice is then you go, and then on Saturday I would get up and I would flip it over and do like a 50% carb, 25 protein, 25 fat. Yeah. And I would do that. And the crazy part is on Saturday night after I was, before I was going to bed, I could see veins from my arm into my shoulder, into my neck, and I could see them in my shins and my Got that thoughts. Wolverine vein. It was fucking crazy. <laughs> I like uh, I was brushing my teeth, and Kate was like, uh, you have a vein in your trap. That's so a Wolverine like, vein. I was like, well, that's pretty good. But that's part of the ABF model, always be flexing. And then, uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I woke up the next morning, and I was like, you know what? If it works, let me try it again. So I carved up again and was like smooth as shit before I went to bed and, <laughs> and smooth. So I realized for me the sweet spot is like, a one day, and that's part of Morrow's deal where you kind of tweak it. Yeah. Now, let's preface this with like, um, you know, the programming and whatever we're doing, like very specific for this type of stuff. Like, yeah. I had to cut my totally. volume back to like squat one day, bench one day, pull mm -hmm. one day, and then accessory on a fourth day because I was trying to squat twice and pull twice to do our normal training and was absolutely fucking torched. Yeah, and I'm, like, I'm bumping it up like uh, at least for the past four or five weeks, it's been pretty much six days a week, which I've never really trained six days a week. Yeah. So it's trying to get more consistent exposure. So uh, I have a quick question for you, Rob, um, just before we get off more towards training or whatever. But when people are going through these different diet changes and they're trying to alter their diet to either gain or lose or, you know, whatever it is, um, how long of a period of time do you, when you make these adjustments, how long do you uh, suggest that they implement them for before they start tinkering with it? Because people will, you know, obviously be, there were such an instant gratification sort of, uh, you know, um, demographic. And so, you know, like how long do you suggest, like, hey, this is when you're going to start to see the changes occurring due to the, the new split or whatever? Oh man, that, it, it's kind of a tough question. I mean, it depends on what the what the person is doing. I, I would say at least a month, though. You know, and yeah. it, 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 that seems like a, a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, although I don't know who this thumb guy is, but that that you know <laughs> seems to be popular. But uh, you know, like if well, we have, Rob, you know what the rule of thumb is, right? I do talk saints, bro. Tell tell me rhetoric, brother. Yeah. Well, right? it's actually the the idea was that uh, in old time England, you could beat your wife. As long as it was oh, not with the, with the stick, stick. It was not larger than anyone who's seen Boondock Saints. So wider than your thumb, so it's uh, <laughs> you know. That's awesome. a great scene. It's still legal. That's what my boyfriend. Yeah. Said. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I selfishly brought this up because I have a debate. I'm gonna I'm gonna start a debate right now. Oh. So we're 12 weeks into this thing, and I'm convinced that if you take a hypo or hypercaloric approach to a weight change, like a drastic change like we've done, I'm saying that it is harder to day in and day out eat more than it is to eat less and be You are I such a little bitch. I completely agree. You have agree. no fucking I totally agree. I'll totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, because the next meal is always there. It, it is 100% harder to gain the weight 
you know, calorie just, or uh, Kelly is calorie. just, <laughs> <laughs> calling her calorie. Well, my nickname, Tex, has always called me K-Cal, which I K-Cal. always love. Yeah. Energy. Well, I, 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 yep. think it's, I, I think it's harder, no, and, and I'll, I'll preface it with this, if, um, so there's like this, uh, when we were young football players, there was something that we called like the red zone of waking, mm-hmm. which is like, okay, hey, like, you know, like I stuff myself, I eat all the time, and I'm at this yeah. level, like let's say it was, and I remember when I went to college, I was 255 pounds, and I had to make it to 280 the next year. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm eating every meal till I'm sick. How the fuck am I going to put on this extra weight? Mm-hmm. And being able to, to make that jump to 280 was absolutely terrible. It was like shakes on the side of the bed. I mean, we were doing uh-huh. like a ton of bodybuilding. I couldn't do anything that like got my heart rate up, so we'd go out and sprint, and I would try to rest. And I ended up being able to put that weight on. And then I remember, like, the jump to 300 was, like, another one. And then uh, when I got up uh, that next year, my, after my rookie year, where I got up into, like, the 320s and plus, and uh, that was a fucking jump. But, I remember, but, like, once you've been at that weight and then you cut back down, mm-hmm. like, I think it's easier to get back. But, like, getting into the red zone, which is that where There are I guess so many factors there. But specifically, I'm not talking about the actual results of the work. I'm talking about it's, the actual work that goes into it. Because I'm experiencing, some, experiencing something I've coined as movement-induced bulkemia, where I've eaten so much, and I get up to do something, and I actually start to puke a little bit because I'm so fucking full. And then what's great is That's two hours later, amazing. I have to fucking eat again, and I'm not even close to hungry. I, uh, dude, uh, part, I have no pity for being hungry. Part of the thing when, when you're in the bulk is uh, in the bulk, one, bro. Well, when you're in the bulk, and, uh, and I, I always think about like guys that, you know, like, a la Riptoe and like mm-hmm. some of like the guys that like you know Zelensky and those guys that tried to do the bulk and ran into problems. The problem is they were doing like three sets of five, mm-hmm. or they were doing something like a uh, fucking small off where all they had to do it. Like you have to do something that's like, you know, you got to throw some machines in, you got to get some volume because if you're just under the squat rack for fifty fucking sets, mm-hmm. like it's not going to work. So I think like throwing in the extra hypertrophy oh, work, sure. doing that. I want to hear Rob's experience though, because Rob, because you've you've had to probably gain and lose for fights. Rob right? had his masking, dude. Rob's got a great masking story. <laughs> oh God, which oh, one I'll, do you want? I mean, I, I competed. I competed in powerlifting in my youth, uh, from 165 pounds up to. Uh, 198 pounds. I, I did the 198 class once, and it oh, was absolutely miserable. And you How know, how tall are you? I'm five nine, and I'm not. I'm not a. I, I tend to just be kind of kind of wiry. Like I'm. I'm not real big framed. Like I'll, I'll put on some muscle mass. And the bugger for me, both in in jujitsu and when I was doing powerlifting, my sweet spot is about 172 pounds, which is kind of too heavy. It, it, so. For the, uh, Slip the, on the, that video and prove it, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, uh, you know, so it, it, uh, it it's it's kind of sucked in a way because, uh, particularly for doing jujitsu now, um, I either need to really get in and eat to bump up to that 181 class, and I have to. And 181 is is weighing in with a gi, and so it's actually being like 178, and yeah. you. You basically weigh in immediately before you you fight, and so you, you've got to legitimately be the weight that you you are. And, and for that context, relative, compared to MMA, it doesn't make sense to me to weight cut. Or my other option, if I want to fight at 165, then I've got to be like 162, which does, isn't super appealing either because I kind of fight for every little scrap of muscle that I've had. But when when I went up to um, 
you know, the, the 188 class. 181 wasn't super hard for me to get to. It was, it was a decent amount of work, but it wasn't terrible, and I could kind of, you know, I would slide back down to about 175 when I wasn't actively trying to compete. But that 198 deal, like, I had shakes all the time. And this is back a long time ago, probably before virtually everybody on this podcast besides John was born, actually. But uh, I would make a shake out of rice and tuna fish and powdered oh. milk. My God! Yeah, that is heinous. Yeah, but what do you got to do to bulk? No, no, you got to do that. You got a matador, like let's prep it this right. So, so there, there was a time before when supplements and Rob will remember this day. I remember uh, my first weight gainer shake that Zangus gave me was in a a five pound sack. Yeah, and I came home and the stuff was so fucking putrid tasting. I had to plug my nose, chew it, mix it with water, ice, peanut butter. I would put anything I could. And you would fucking down uh, this, like and if I smelled it, I would throw up. It was so fucking bad. Yeah. Like, it, and and so like the it's idea of like doing like, uh, you know, tuna fish milk and that type of stuff uh, is, is at, what was actually probably more palatable than some of the protein. It's it was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's uh, you, you know, it's um. At this point, and I, I wish I had thought about this stuff ages ago, but even even then, the testing labs weren't really available. At this point, if somebody wants to do a mass gain, like I really feel like it, it has to be in the the context of nearly perfect sleep, uh, a really well constructed program, and I would really recommend going and getting a full androgen profile, sure. getting, getting an ASI test, make sure your you know your AM cortisol is good, PM cortisol is good. Because if the androgen profile isn't there, you, you know, for, for mass gain, I'm not a huge expert on this stuff, but you, you've got to have volume stimulus, a progressive overload, the caloric excess, and then you need the androgen profile to support growth. And there are a lot of people out there that are just burning the candle at, at both ends. And, and uh, if the androgen profile really isn't amenable towards muscle gain, then you, you're just going to waste your time. You're going to get fat. Masking is a stressor. Uh, when you start getting under stress, you start generating more cortisol. The cortisol creates this pregnenolone steel situation where your testosterone goes down even more. And this is true for either men or women. So I think that when you, if you're contemplating a mass gain, uh, you know that's aggressive at all, it really behooves you to do some of this this uh, uh, pre-validation. I, I hate the whole concept of hacks. This isn't a hack. This is just Making sure it, it's like I spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars to biohack myself. No, exactly. Yeah. I, well, I spent a hundred and fifty bucks and got better results. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I don't. I don't disagree with you. Uh, this is information that would have been useful twelve weeks ago. Well, you yeah. still can. Well, wait a minute. You have a healthy energy profile. I think. I, I guess. I mean, just looking at you, I can yeah, tell. I mean, I'm, I, I'm I have the ability to. Well, I think though I think though the smaller you are, especially Ashley has it the hardest because mm -hmm. the smaller you are, and I think depending for her, she has to gain and she just doesn't have. She's turning. She's really turning either. into the control group uh, for to test the program. Okay. She's like. She's like she's I'm not, out. Yeah, can't she's do basically it. out on the food, but she's doing the programming. That she's I think though that the maybe to, Rob, there's some there's some to put on weight, uh, and, and and like this is the hard part, like for. Like you need a big fucking carrot, like like the masking, like somebody like you know like like we did it for a 22 week and like we have a deal. I mean for for me it was like lose your scholarship or put the weight on, like like that type of shit. Like we'll force somebody to put it on, but just somebody who's like, oh, I'm a garage gym lifter and I want to put on 20 pounds. Yeah, that's. A <laughs> 
That's it's, a, it's, it's, a it's fucking tough, but I mean, Cal, I, I mean, Callie's part part of her deal is, uh, you know, she, you know, like really wanted to make this big change, and it's easy, and I think people can like see that because like you got good results, and then all of a sudden you kind of got like, oh shit, I'm getting results, I'm gonna fucking go for it. Yeah. You know, which is nice. Whereas Luke is just bloated all the time. Yeah, but I look good. Yeah. But poor Tex hasn't Tex lost weight? <laughs> no, I'm I'm plateaued at two hundred five, and so here's the deal: Luke has been this heavy before. Bobby has been this heavy before. I've got to create this weight. This is the heaviest I've ever been. They're six inches taller than you. Tex, aren't you like 5'2", though? What's that? Uh, how tall are you, like 5'5", five, 5'6"? Five, five, I, I wish. No, it's like more 5'8", depending on whether it's my high school football program or my driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll go with 5'9 and a half. Good, good. Yeah. And, you know, th this could be an argument. Like, that's a, that's a great point. Um, instead of a concerted, say, like 20-week block, maybe you break this thing into four or five, four or five-week blocks, Mm -hmm. And you you make a push for like a five pound gain, and then you maintain, and then a five you know, the, and then let it go three, four, five months. Uh, the uh, the maintain again. thing is going to be the aggressive part. I think we're all on our way, but it's like the maintain thing is going to be hard. And all I do when I think of like trying to coast into the last few weeks is I get an image of Leonidas from 300 just saying, like, hold my leg. Hold? I swear. No, I, I keep picturing a Stallone <laughs> cliffhanger with, like, one finger, and he's like, don't drop her. And he's like, now he's, like, holding the chip, and she's like, don't let me go. like, 100%. I'm like, I just want to hold it. Come on. Well, the, uh, End I mean, it. <laughs> See, but in the maintenance gig, you're going to you're gonna backslide a little bit, but you make an... An, an aggregate gain. You go forward, you know, three steps. You go back, maybe one. But it really draw you. You can um, you can really drop the volume of food that you're consuming, and you can kind of reestablish a a set point there. I, I had a pretty big conversation with Stefan Guinea and Dan Party, some really sharp dudes, and and you know we're looking at this thing more from like just fat loss kind of kind of story, but you know, how do people become obese, which is you know clearly non-beneficial. Uh, mass game, but it's interesting. The body has a remarkable number of mechanisms that um, that kick in to try to prevent you from gaining weight. Like the, it, it takes a while to to break the metabolism to start gaining weight, and that 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 works on both the obesity side and on the uh, you know the hypertrophy side. And I think that there's a good argument for tackling this thing in a more graduated fashion. You know, to go after it, you know, get really get after the eating for like four weeks, maybe five weeks, and then dial things back a little bit on the on the food. Um, uh, hit a, you know, keep the volume of of training that you're doing comparatively high, and uh, and then well, like, give your body some time to, to maintain, and then push that well, thing um, up again. Doesn't it kind of fuck you to always kind of stay in caloric deficit? I mean, like I I know that uh, you know for some people, oh, I live like forever. I'll, I'll tell you the thing that I've really enjoyed about this is not feeling like I had to eat uh, as much as I did. Like this has been kind of neat to actually kind of eat a smaller amount, and it's uh it's actually pretty gratifying to not feel like I was full all the time. Right. And then to like kind of portion like like go in and like um like dinner last night we cooked steaks and I like ate half of the steak and I was like. It's just so nice because I would feel compelled to eat that whole mm -hmm. steak. And you know what? I got that other half of steak in the fridge for lunch. So I went to get my favorite tacos last night. I got three. Wasn't even hungry. I had to force feed myself 
one and a half tacos. Oh my god, your life is so hard. It is. You have no idea. You start first to world problems. You know what? Here's the thing. Here's why I don't have sympathy for Luke because if it was just about mass gain, he would have just had three tacos and then had like a mass gain or shake or whatever else. You know, like because. shots of olive oil, whatever you need to get the calories. But you fucking love a taco, all right? And it's like this guy does love a fucking taco. Just, you guys got I love a fucking here? taco. Are there tacos here? Are there tacos here? Are there tacos here? I didn't even finish this. I was just wasn't on. I wasn't ready to eat. I still had. I'm still. Last night I didn't even finish my caloric goal, but uh, I didn't even finish a bowl of chips. That's how you know something's off. Right. Are you mm-hmm. feeling sick? Uh, I'm not feeling good. Rob, let's talk a little bit um, about. Okay, yeah, I'm done. Let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about because we can't talk about twenty two. Well, no, I, uh, well I, I just wanted to ask Rob one question oh, about sure. like uh, like you talked about set points. Can you get into like some like the leptin stuff because I think that's super fascinating. I think people don't really understand it. Uh, like like the leptin set point and like with people especially like you were talking about like it's difficult for the body to get obese but people do it very very well and then all of a sudden when that leptin set point kind of works and how long it takes to really reset that oh man I mean I, I'm honestly not a huge expert on leptin I mean the fundamentals are that uh, uh, leptin is released by our fat mass um, if we are leptin sensitive then there, there's kind of a, a linear correlation between fat mass and the amount of leptin that's being released and that that uh, leptin that's released will um, if the signaling is occurring properly then it tells us if you're hungry or if you're full and this is some of the stuff that that happens when we start overeating is that initially we don't become leptin resistant what we become is warm you, you know you're you're sweating you get this uh, uh, the decoupling proteins that that are in our mitochondria flip on so instead of this energy going to productive work and growth the body temperature just goes up and that's one of the first adaptations that occurs just trying to bleed off excess energy because it, uh, this this caloric excess is registering as a stress and you, Rob, we call it meat sweats heat sweats yeah no, yeah no meat meat sweats Carnet. sweats okay um, yeah. Or if you're if you're Michael Moore, apparently it's called the uh, Crisco sweats or something like that. Oh God! Yeah, yeah. He is pretty disgusting. Um, so you know that's some of the early process, and then over the course of time, and it, I I I don't think we know for sure if it's an, an inflammatory response, and that that makes sense because these uncoupling proteins they produce a ton of reactive oxygen species. They tend to increase inflammatory biomarkers, and then this may then cause some sort of damage in the hypothalamus where we stop sensing leptin appropriately and that's where the the leptin dysregulation occurs and and this is you know I, I think that there's an, an argument for a, a couple of different tactics on a either a mass gain or a weight loss protocol if if we're in a mass gain protocol I could make an argument for tackling the mass gain in shorter uh, blocks and take a longer period of time like instead of the 20 week dedicated block you do three or four shorter blocks over the course of a year and then even within that block um, uh, some of your some days should be hypocaloric days and possibly severely hypocaloric days because this will send enough of a stress signal to the body that the body is kind of like hey okay you know the body is always more concerned about starvation than than it is with overfeeding like overfeeding is a kind of a novel uh, irritant to the body it has ways of dealing with it but but starvation is the more concerning feature and so if you have a day or two here and there where the caloric intake is dramatically different then I think that we get some you know then on the days when we're hypercaloric 
I don't think we get as much of that uncoupling protein activity. Um, it allows your digestion to kind of rest and reset. Uh, Fred Hatfield kind of figured this out with the zigzag diet back in the 80s. So I, I think there's some argument for tackling this in more punctuated pieces and also having more variability day to day. Now that, that becomes a little bit more of a pain in the balls for figuring out what your caloric intake needs to be. You know, it, it's nice when you get this all dialed in. You're like, okay, I'm eating 5,000 calories a day and, and you, you figure out how much chicken and rice and all the rest of that stuff that comes out to. But I think there's some argument for doing that. And similarly, in a weight loss fashion, uh, you know, multiple days of caloric restriction will start down-regulating our uh, non-exercise activity. So where a person used to fidget and kind of move around, the person will become lethargic and kind mm. of cold and sedentary. And so it makes <laughs> an argument for, um, you know, every couple of days to really pop the caloric intake up. I've always been cold. Yeah, and uh, 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 th that will, you know, maybe send a little bit of a signal to the body that we're not in overt starvation so we can be, we don't need to be, need to be so thrifty with our calories. Sure. You know that that was more also the old when uh, when I did that, uh, you know, started the anabolic diet, uh, you know, in '99 or 2000. His deal was like, you know, you have to, you know, you're going to be at these different deals. You have to stair step it up and down, and then like one day a week when you do your carb refeed, you got to fucking like, like Hammer go at it. Yeah, and and I remember uh, I was pretty consistent with the calories when I put the weight on, and then when I wanted to lean out. Um, his whole deal was like, dude, you you know, we're gonna keep you low, and you gotta stay, you know, kind of stair step. But like, I need you to go out, like, uh, you know, fast in the morning, like train, and then fast and like six o'clock at night. I want you just to go fucking hog wild. And I remember uh, like going out to this place and just fucking eating till like the cows come home. And I remember getting up and I had lost like six pounds like the next morning, and it was like, how the fuck did that happen? And um, you know, I I, I think Rob and I had an offline conversation about this, about like the idea that uh, you know people make their best gains in training when they start a new program and the chip stimulus trains. Like we were trained at that bodybuilder gym and the week we joined it, they sold it to a new place and brought in all this new equipment and all these old barnacles were all pissed off. And a guy asked me about it and I was like, actually, this is going to be the best thing that happened in your life. And he's like, why is that? I'm like, well, you've done the same shit for 20 years now by just bringing in new machines. Now we're going to, you know, drive adaptation. I think Callie said the same thing yeah. to the guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, all the old barnacles left, which is good because now we don't have to fucking see them sticking around. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, just by changing stimulus, and I remember Inglidon especially telling me, he's like, you know, when we've seen the most dramatic changes is when people do something that is so unlike, like Callie was, you know, eating obviously a certain way, and now she's gone to a, a more balanced kind of, you know, 40, 30, 30 macros and this, yeah. and she'd make great gains. Luke, on the other hand, uh, you know, in the same way, now it's gone from now he's going to consistent calories. He was under, whereas he Luke way under was a um, kind of a warrior diet, or almost where you wouldn't eat all day, and then you'd go home and try to eat like yeah. five thousand calories a hey, meal. Someone's got to keep the lights on around here, you know. Oh God! What? It's a diva. All right. Um, <laughs> so I so so the moral of the story is now they they've obviously changed what they've been doing, but uh, the one thing which is is actually just kind of interesting is that. Even if you kind of dump your calories down and you kind of play with it a little bit, if you keep the protein high, protein is very uh, muscle sparing. And for me, what I've noticed is protein is almost the most important. I mean, it is the most important nutrient that I've found for muscle and body composition. So I think like if you really want to try to shed some body mass, you know, you lower that protein down. If you want to like try to lose some some body weight but keep keep the muscle mess up. You got to almost dial that protein. Oh, and, and John, here's the flip side of that. I, I completely agree. Here's the flip side of that, and it's uh, 
it, it may be a little counterintuitive, but on a mass gain protocol, you could actually make a good argument to not have protein too high, and that's because protein is incredibly satiating. Yeah. So getting somebody from fat to lean, very high protein intake is great because it, it, it going back to the leptin and the neuroregulation of appetite and whatnot, if we consume a, a lot of protein, we get full very, very quickly. And this is maybe an argument, you know, again, on the, uh, the, the mass gain side, you want enough protein, but I suspect that you, the individual will find that they can eat more calories if the protein is at a moderate level versus a higher level. And clearly, you, again, you need enough to grow, but if there's a caloric excess, in, it, your body will be pretty crafty at, at allocating resources and we're, we're still talking about you know probably like uh, you know three quarters of a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass or something like that but I, I could possibly make an argument that that some of the the problems that folks have on a mass gain protocol and I suspect that I did this in the past was that I was so fixated on protein intake that I was actually sending an overly strong satiety signal it was very hard to overcome, whereas if yeah. my protein were more moderate, I could probably consume more total calories and get better progress all the way around. Well, it's, um, I mean, it's, it, it makes sense. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, and I was telling these guys when I was in college, um, I was, you know, really, really struggled to keep body weight, and they used to weigh us, and I was telling, um, I think I told Luke the story, there was this place called Krusty's Pizza, and if you ordered after 10 o'clock, they would, uh, it was like, uh, this whole pan of uh, breadsticks and a pound of chicken wings for like four ninety nine or five bucks. It was like basically they closed at eleven. If you ordered at ten, they would just fucking all the shit that they didn't sell, they would just send out. So we would like wait and call them at like nine fifty eight, and they'd be like, "Nope, can't do it yet. You got to wait two minutes." And I hang up and call them again, and then they would bring it over, and uh, I ate that like three four nights a week. And I now that I rem I would like tally up the calories, it had to be a three to four thousand calorie uh, meal. And I would eat that three or four nights a week on top of my other calories and still not really gain weight. And I remember being like, man, like this is, uh, I remember my girlfriend at the time just being like, fuck you. The fact that you're eating this right now and not gaining weight is unreal. I swear but John tells a story repeatedly just to torture me because mm. he knows that I would. She um, loves crusty pizza. I would. Whatever it was. Uh, the thought I'd of love eating a that stick. stuff, actually, uh, and then the, well, yeah, I really appreciate nice. this, the reason that I probably didn't gain a pound was because 20 minutes after I finished, I would, yeah, it was a bad deal. It was like Rob Wolf on a, on a whole loaf of uh, whole bread. So, <laughs> so, like, my goal is uh, I want to film a whole series of, like, punking Rob Wolf where I just go around and slip gluten into his food and then no, videotape him. Like, a look on idea. his face when Rob gets gluten dosed is awesome. Just so long as I can take a crap in your nice new bathroom, <laughs> then I'm fine. <laughs> when I do a gluten dose bathroom run, like, you basically brick that thing over and get a, a priest and do an exorcism. That thing is fucking done. Oh my god. Tell it is more. a nice bathroom. What's that? Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> Luke's like, so what's different than any other day of my life? <laughs> more, de more detail. No, I mean, I, I've always been fascinated with the leptin stuff. I mean, that uh, that idea of signaling hunger, and I always thought that, like, the idea of, you know, that we've been conditioned where it's like, oh, you know, you eat every two or three hours, and you got to keep constant nutrient feeding. But I think that also kind of plays into a little bit of um, do people actually know when they're hungry? I mean, Callie obviously knows when she's hungry. But, Everyone uh, fucking knows when I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Callie's getting hungry. Yeah, again. getting hungry. And I, you know, like I always wonder if like it might benefit people a little bit to to you know. Try I'm fine to do now. Some I, when, I, when we first started this thing, I was I was fine. But um, 
Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of segue, Rob. Uh, we were talking about trends. One of the t trends that sort of, like, I think hit uh, with the rise of CrossFit and everything was just, like, the, the protein consumption. Everything was about meat and bacon. And one of the other trends that's sort of um, influencing people's diets right now is kombucha and the idea of eating fermented foods or drinking fermented um, the byproduct of these fermented foods, uh, you know, um, can you can you speak on that? Tell us of the legitimacy on gut health, and uh, you know whether it's possible to take it too far. Oh man, you know it's uh, that stuff is kind of the wild west right now. There's a great website called the the uh, Human Gut Project, and there's mm -hmm. this guy Jeff Leach who's a a researcher, and he has lived in and among the Hudsa in sub-Saharan Africa for a number of years and has been collecting their poo and running it through a PCR and checking out what type of strains of bacteria and the dude actually did a fecal transplant from one of the Hudsas and is tracking all this stuff and it's it's interesting he makes the point that in these hunter-gatherer groups that he's seen he doesn't see any of these uh, say like lactobacillus and bifidium type organisms that are really uh, usually touted as being healthful and beneficial in more westernized circles because we you know we consume things like yogurt and sauerkraut and that that's been kind of a uh, uh, acculturated you know adaptation to our food it, it seems like this stuff is a net win but honestly like it varies so much from person to person um, a lot of people have this condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth some of these um, probiotics, you know, like resistant starch that, that provides a, a food substrate for uh, bacteria, and ideally it, it, this is occurring in the colon and not, not uh, further north in the small intestine. Um, you know, it, people react wildly differently to this stuff. So it's really hard to say this is good, that's bad. Uh, there, it, it, here's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, there's some great data that indicates the H. pylori is very beneficial if we are exposed to it as kids. But what's interesting is that most kids, I, I think there's a statistic here, that most kids by the age of two have gone through upwards of four rounds of antibiotics, which completely strafe bombs their, their uh, gastrointestinal system. If they had had a vaginal birth and, and received the, the microbiome from their mother, which theoretically what we're talking about here is the potential that you've been inheriting a microbiome that may be thousands or tens of thousands of years old and, and you know, uh, shifted forward generation to generation. We completely strafe bomb that and then that stuff changes forever with, with the mm -hmm. application of antibiotics. And clearly shit like, you know, tuberculosis and, and you know, strep throat and stuff like that can kill people. So um, you want to use antibiotics selectively, but we're, we're really changing our gut biome a lot. And what, what's very interesting is that adults that are exposed to H. pylori, it seems to increase the likelihood of peptic ulcers and also uh, uh, stomach and esophageal cancer. Hmm. So, it, you know, it's not just a factor of is this bug good or bad? There may be like a, a temporal element to it where if you're exposed to it early, it may be beneficial if that gets removed and then your immune system adapts to other things and you get exposed to it later, it could be negative. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is so fucking complex that I've, I've almost just kind of dropped off of that bus and just kind of like stand, stand on the sidelines and wait for people that are really knowledgeable on that to, to look into it. And even the people that are really, really knowledgeable about it, uh, there's way, way, way more 
questions and answers uh, on that story. So, I mean, it, 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 I would kick this one to just kind of the performance outcome. You know, if yeah. you introduce fermented foods and your digestion is better, uh, you're not so weird poops and farting and all that type of stuff, then it, it's probably a net win. If you get some bloating yeah. and GI problems after a, a week or two of fiddling with it, then maybe it's not a good fit uh, with kombucha. Some people who have a mold allergy or intolerance, they can be cross-reactive to that. So, I mean, it, it's it's all over the place. And, the, it, you know, the, John and I talk about this all the time, trying to figure out what our, our 80% kind of Pareto law, you know, story is to people to get people most of the way there. And then we can start doing tweaking and customization. The tweaking and customization on the gut biome stuff is just confusing to me. Like, I really don't have, I feel like I understood all this stuff better 10 years ago than I do now. <laughs> hey, man. Like, I am way more fucking confused about all this stuff now than what I was 10 years ago. Well, the, um, just to segue a little bit, uh, when my little girls were born, they were both C-section because they, um, they were both breached, so C-section was the only way they were going to get out. And, you know, knowing a lot of this stuff that, you know, going through the vaginal birth and, uh, you know, obviously like the gut biota is different and with those kids, uh, we dosed them, uh, you know, from Matt Lalonde and also from Chris Cresser's recommendation, we found out that there was no way that we were going to be able to have a natural birth. Uh, their deal was like, hey, you're going to have to really, you know, one, avoid all antibiotics uh, if you can, and then also dose those kids with um, a bunch of uh, high-level pro probiotics from a fairly young age. So I had to actually bring sneak probiotics in when they were babies, and we were I was like basically putting on my finger trying to put it in their mouth uh, when the, the doctors weren't around. But, you know, like using that type of stuff, I mean, it was, uh, it's been kind of a, a grind because you know about this, and yet when you go to the doctor, uh, you know, the first thing they do, oh, you have this, let me prescribe this. And I remember when the girls went in and were sick, they were, uh, all they wanted to do is prescribe antibiotics. And I'm like, you know what, like, um, uh, let's not do this. And I think we, we've given them one round of antibiotics, but knowing that they were uh, C-section babies, they were going to have a different gut. Uh, you know, chemistry than obviously other kids. So, I mean, uh, I know it's pretty in vogue right now to do C-section, but, uh, you know, if you look at some of the, the stressors, and Rob can talk about this a little bit more, about that, like, that stressful situation of that child actually going through the birth canal actually sets um, a ton of the characteristics with not only everything from, you know, uh, you know, gut permeability, but also, uh, you know, brain and, and all these other things that we just don't know. So people that are opting for this, like, voluntary C-section because it's easier, uh, I kind of disagree with that and think, you know what, we don't really necessarily know what we're doing. We're messing with, you know, millions well, of years. Well, more, it's more expensive. And that, that, you know, well, I mean, there there's a lot of, I mean, people when, think that's big, when, big business. Well, no, I mean, when, surgery. When, uh, when we were in the, the hospital, there were a ton of women that had opted for, um, for the uh, voluntary C-section. They're like, oh, my, my dad's birth date is this date. Little Johnny will yeah. be born on the same day as grandpa, you know. Yeah. Or, or, or oh, uh, I don't want to go through childbirth, so I'm going to just have a surgery and have it over really quickly. And there's a lot of women that have done that. And when we were in the uh, the ICU, I mean, or when we were in recovery, one, there, there were two things that um, the nurses were completely amazed by. One of them was natural twins. Like the nurses kept coming in, and they were like, <laughs> Oh my God, we heard it was natural twins. And I, I remember finally after like the third nurse came in, I'm like, what, what the fuck? And she's like, well, we haven't seen natural twins in so long because of obviously uh, artificial insemination and they put in two eggs and a lot of the twins that they got is from that. So that was kind of a big deal. And then the other one is they were like, oh, it was a non-voluntary C-section. 
So there were a lot of the, I mean, a ton of the women had been doing voluntary C-sections. So pretty interesting that, you know, here we are. We think we're getting real jiggy with it. And it turns out we're actually messing up some of the evolution. Well, I'm glad you we know, did. I, I was going to say, I had never ahead. heard of that before. Uh, both of my girls were born vaginally. And you're saying that just that act alone, it alters their, their gut chemistry? Well, it populates them with a, a flora from their mother in a, a completely different way than from a C-section. And it, it appears to be incredibly beneficial for the, the child to, to go through that vaginal birth process, both with regards to epigenetic signaling, like, like John alluded to, like it's turning on all that, that stress process of being born turns on a whole bunch of genes, and we have no idea exactly what's going on other than just looking at kind of long-term health outcomes. And so there's a, a, maybe you could make the argument for like a hormetic stress response there at the beginning of, of life. And then also there's this other piece that the, the child gets populated with a completely different type of uh, gut and surface biota that also appears to be very, very beneficial. That's so interesting. Well, <clears throat> with that... Uh... Would that ever happen again? Like if they, as a child, um, reaches puberty, would their, would their gut chemistry be altered again, or is that just kind of at birth? And well, I mean, you get populated with it at birth, and then this stuff shifts and changes throughout a lifetime, like to, based off the type of food you're eating, if you get exposed to antibiotics, if there's a pretty good bet that chlorinated water dramatically alters our, our gut microbiota. So, I mean, there's a... There's a lot of different factors in there, and you know, this is all the cost-benefit story that we have to play with with modern life. If we don't treat our water with uh, with chlorine, then there's a pretty good bet that everybody's going to be running around with dysentery because, in most places, like all you guys in LA, you guys are drinking the toilet water from everybody north of the state with you. <laughs> you know, it's it's gone in and out of multiple toilets by the time you guys get it, and so you've got to treat the stuff and. Uh, uh, that that's just kind of the way it is. But there's there's what we're what I think we're finding on like the degenerative disease side of side of this story, is that there's you know sleep, food, movement, photo period, and gut flora or or flora in general considerations that um, our modern life is starting to mess with. And and there's clearly upsides to this stuff, but there's also some potential downsides when we start looking at it. Uh, autoimmune disease, um, uh, uh, asthma, and things like that. You know, we're not tuning the immune system in the same way that, that we've been kind of evolved to to uh, uh, get that early tuning. Kids that are raised on a farm tend to have far fewer, fewer allergies and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of autoimmune-type diseases. Kids that are raised with a lot of animals tend, tends to be the same story because we're getting a, a constant, um, they're getting outside inputs that tune the immune system. So there, you, you know, it's not just that this is good or bad, but oftentimes what this is is keeping the immune system within the right parameters. You don't want too much. You don't want too little. If you're too little, you're immune compromised, and you develop something like like AIDS. If you have too much, then you're autoimmune and you're hyperreactive to everything in your environment. So you want kind of the the right balance between those things, and we're doing a lot of things that appears to be messing with that balance. Rob and I were in. Uh, I, uh, we took the kids up and visited Rob uh, not too long ago, a couple months ago, and uh, we had uh, the opportunity to take the girls to this kind of I don't know what was that like the petting zoo slash like yeah. 
like yeah. Halloween kind of like hayride deal. And uh, we put the girls on, and they got to ride on the back of these uh, these these horses. And um, as soon as they got off. Kate goes over to spray like antibacterial oh stuff gosh. on their hands, and I was like, no, 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 no. And she's like, what? I'm like, no, 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 no. Let them suck on their like. We want this. And she was like, what are you talking about? And then Rob like explained a little bit, and like the look on her face was like the mother who's been like, you know, like, uh, yeah. Well, like I mean, it's just it's just what you do because like they it's fucking common. put everything in their mouth, and it's just like, yeah. oh god. But like they were like there, and like Kate like ran over to like the hit him with the stuff, like whoa, 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 you know, stop it up and. uh and then, like, later in the car, like, Rob explains it a little bit, and Kate was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And uh, well, the, the really good one is when all the girls were feeding the goats, and the goats are just, like, licking and slobbering all the, all over their hands. And they have basically goat slobber from their elbows down to their fingertips. Goats are was like, do we need to wash our hands? I'm like, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, like uh, Louis will go over, like, because uh, the girls are obviously, well, they've grown taller now, but like Louis's still at like their height, so he goes over and like licks them in the mouth all the time if they're eating something. Louis's and, a dog. Yeah, Louis's, uh, well, everybody, yeah, <laughs> Louis's my pit bull. And uh, like the funniest part is the girls like scream at him, they're like, no, Louis, don't lick me in the mouth. And Kate like looks at me, I'm like, dude, it's good. Like, he's, I don't know what he's eating out there, but hopefully he gets it in there and gives him a little bit of, uh, you know, adaptation. To this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Rob, I wanted to uh, equip some of our coaches who listen to the podcast, and um, you know, one of the one of the big issues and the big sort of uh, myths that lie in nutrition is the big cholesterol myth, and um, you know, the science that surrounds that. And you know, when when people hear of cholesterol or they go and they get their cholesterol tested, do they really know what they're looking at, and do they know, you know, how much can be altered by diet? How much is really um, genetic, and I wanted you to kind of give your, you know, five, ten minute, like when someone approaches you about cholesterol, like, oh, I can't have that, my cholesterol is high, you know, like how do you how do you breach that sub subject with people because it it happens to be like a really personal thing for people for some reason, um, and you know they make huge diet changes. I know people personally who become vegetarians because of it, and really like changing their diet. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the meat necessarily. It was all the other shit that they were eating too. Um, that was causing crazy insulin responses, etc. So, I mean, how do you how do you kind of couch that with athletes and coaches? Oh man, you know, it's a it's a big meaty topic. I mean, the 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 cholesterol story goes back to probably the the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, they some researchers fed uh, like just whole cholesterol to rabbits. You know, they, they chemically isolated this cholesterol, fed it to rabbits. The rabbits developed uh, atherogenic uh, disease profiles. And so it, it, and the, that was a piece of, of kind of a smoking gun story. And then there's another genetic condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, where these people have very, very high cholesterol levels, and they tend to die early from uh, atherosclerotic uh, disease progression. And so this is kind of where this, this idea that, that cholesterol causes heart disease came from. But what, what's always been interesting is that maybe 40% of people on any given day, if they have a heart attack or a stroke, they have low normal cholesterol levels. And clearly some people with high cholesterol levels have atherogenic disease process. Some people with high cholesterol levels do not have atherogenic disease process. Some people with very low cholesterol levels have atherogenic disease process such that they actually die from it. So, you know, this thing's been kind of all over the map as, as far as that goes. And uh, uh, 
I, I, sure, I'll, I'll launch down this. It gets a little bit technical, but um, <laughs> no, so, that's fine. You, you know, cholesterol is a, a molecule that's critical to our our life. Uh, all of our cell membranes have cholesterol that improves the membrane fluidity, and and uh, it's a it's an energy medium in the body. Um, people are usually familiar with HDL cholesterol and LDL cholesterol, and one of them gets labeled good, and one gets and it protects bad. it protects the cells, right? It, it, yeah, it protects the cells. I mean, it, it, it's critical for all. It, it, it's a it, our body can and does manufacture cholesterol, so we don't necessarily need dietary sources of it. Typically, when we consume dietary cholesterol, our body downregulates the production of cholesterol. It's usually pretty pretty tightly regulated. But here's an interesting thing: science tends to test what is easy to look at, and for a very very long time, what we looked at was this stuff called cholesterol. But cholesterol doesn't float around. Our, our circulatory system in a, a free fashion, it's bound up in these things called lipoproteins. And we have a huge variety of lipoproteins, VLDL lipoproteins, HDL lipoproteins, LDL lipoproteins. And these lipoproteins are, are a protein lipid combination that the protein part dissolves in, in aqueous medium in, in our plasma. And then the lipid portion uh, it allows uh, cholesterol and cholesterol-like like, uh, lipids to be associated in that. And so it, it's basically kind of like a soap bubble that allows you to float something through a water medium, even though this thing is, a, is an oil-type substance and wouldn't normally float through the body. So uh, lipoproteins though, are, are kind of hard to discriminate one versus the other. They've historically been pretty hard to characterize. But the, the thing to really take away here is that what we are always looking at on a standard blood test is cholesterol. But that's merely an analog for, or, or a, it, it's, a, it, it's representative of what's going on with the lipoproteins, but not an exact measure. And so what we've developed more recently is a, an NMR technique for looking directly at lipoproteins. And part of it, and here's a way to, to think about this stuff. Uh, the lipoproteins are a car. The cholesterol is a passenger in the car. So if you, we think about this, what's dangerous uh, if we're driving on the road when we have 100 cars on a mile stretch of road or when we have 1,000 cars on a mile stretch of road? Clearly the, you know, the, the, the 1,000 cars. But the amount of passengers allocated within those those vehicles doesn't really matter all that much. And, and then if we have a bus, which is a very large vehicle, we can pump a whole bunch of people around and we really only have one additional vehicle on the on the roadways. And it's it's a pretty good analogy that works with cholesterol and lipoproteins. And so when I started doing this work here with this group in, in Reno looking at lipoproteins and police, military, and firefighters, we found that there were people who um, they, they came to us and they had what appeared to be low cholesterol levels, but they had very, very high, specifically LDL lipoprotein counts. And these are the cops and firefighters that are 35, 40 years old, go out on a call and die from a cardiac event. And th this is called discordance, and it, it uh, just mi it's missed by virtually every cardiologist, virtually every GP on the planet right now because these people don't understand the difference between cholesterol and lipoproteins and that the lipoproteins are really the driver of um, the, the atherogenic process. The, the greater the number of uh, lipoproteins, the greater the likelihood of, of a, a disease process. And you can have two people, one each of them with an LDL cholesterol of 100, 
but one of them can have a lipoprotein count of 800, another person could have a lipoprotein count of 2500. And so they would be completely missed on, on standard blood work. One of them is at a very high risk for cardiovascular disease. The other one is at a very low risk for cardiovascular disease. Then there's another type of discordance where you have somebody that has high cholesterol levels but very low lipoprotein count. And those people are put on a statin, which is completely inappropriate given the fact that they actually very, they have very, very low likelihood of uh, cardiovascular disease developing. And, you know, one thing that we do generally tend to see is that someone with metabolic derangement, insulin resistance, they tend to have high cholesterol and high lipoprotein counts due to elevated insulin shutting down the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, which is involved in cholesterol synthesis and, and uh, uh, basically it regulates whether or not we're, we're producing uh, uh, cholesterol. And when insulin levels are high, we start producing more cholesterol and more lipoproteins. So this is one of the, the reasons why we, we do like to keep insulin within uh, pretty tightly regulated levels. And this is why generally people who are obese and insulin resistant, if we put them on a lower carbohydrate diet, we tend to see a dramatic improvement in lipoproteins and, and cholesterol levels. But not everybody who eats a low-carb diet ends up getting a, a really beautiful lipoprotein count. We're not 100% sure on that stuff. Uh, for, for myself, I had kind of an a eye-opening experience. Um, I went on this uh, Discovery Channel reality show, I Caveman, and they did a really thorough physical before we went on there. And unfortunately, they didn't check my, my lipoproteins, but they did do a, a standard blood work and my, my cholesterol levels and lipo pro, or general lipid profile had always been very, very good. Went on that show, got my balls kicked through the roof of my mouth on that thing. You know, I starved for, for 10 days, lost 18 pounds, um, uh, uh, got the first gray hairs I've ever had after that thing. And for probably a year, year and a half, two years after that, I was just broken. And we couldn't really figure out what was going on. Uh, went in and got my lipoproteins checked, and my LDLP was 2,600, which is very, very high. And when we started doing some poking around then on my cortisol and thyroid, and this is a really important point too, my thyroid panel, uh, from a standard medical practitioner's perspective, looked okay, but my TSH had gone up three times from what it, its normal baseline was. Jeez. So even though it was within normal bounds, it had increased by a factor of three for me, and I was clearly having, and it, my, my reverse T3 was, was uh, on the high side, and when you have low thyroid activity, then your LDL re receptor sites are not functioning properly, and that's what clears uh, LDL particles out of your system. So we got into some aggressive uh, adrenal and thyroid uh, fixes. I, I really dialed my coffee intake back. I quit going out on the road. I made sleep a huge priority. Unfortunately, I had our first daughter right around that time, so that, that definitely um, that, that put a little bit of a challenge on this stuff. But two years later, uh, my uh, TSH is now below what it was on my, my first reading that I had a number of years ago, and now my LDLP, it was 2,600 uh, two years ago, and now it's 800. And my, my cholesterol levels have also plummeted. I, I forget what it was. It was like uh, LDL cholesterol was like 185 or something, and now it's like 90 or something like that, like quite low. That's a very, very good explanation. That's exactly what I was well, uh, sure for. Rob, but also like a lot of this, I remember us sitting at uh, uh, Master John's talk at AHS 
when he really went into that whole deal with uh, with lipoproteins, and that was uh, if anybody wants to check that out, that was pretty fascinating too. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's um, it, in my opinion, it's kind of malpractice at this point to run uh, uh, standard blood work in, in the absence of of having an LDL particle count attached to it. Like it, it's all it does, it, it like. Even if the individual looks pretty, you know, this is what the I guess I'll throw a caveat in there. If we have somebody that, if we did a health risk assessment on them, and their family history was clear of cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes, if they're based off of their uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio, they're insulin sensitive, um, then I could make an argument that a standard blood panel is probably enough for those people. But we have enough people. They, they have some cardiovascular disease in their family. They have some diabetes in their family. Uh, they might be a little bit insulin resistant. And so when they run that basic blood work, all it does is create more questions. And and uh, uh, this is why I'm, I'm kind of deluged with people that are like, dude, I just got my blood work back. My cholesterol is a little high. Should I be scared? And we can't answer that. It is a guess based, right. based off of that, that level of... Uh, Blood work, and in, in my opinion, cardiologists and, and GPs that are putting people on on statins based off that blood work, they're really doing a huge disservice to folks because one, they don't know if it's really appropriate, and two, there's a massive number of issues that can drive particle count up. Uh, gut dysbiosis absolutely it influences uh, uh, LDL particle count in a negative fashion. So if somebody has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, if they have gluten intolerance, and that stuff isn't being addressed they will have elevated LDL particle count, and then what the standard medical practice would do is stick this person on a statin, which the statin is increasing their likelihood of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, and it's not addressing the fundamental cause, and we should be looking at cortisol issues, thyroid issues, and gut dysbiosis, and if we're not addressing that kind of functional medicine base, you're, you're just completely shitting the bed on addressing this stuff in a, a rational fashion. Um, it just really quick, uh, I don't know if this will be a quick answer, but how does gut dysbiosis um, cause, cause like scientifically, how does it cause that chain reaction of lipoprotein um, increases? That's a really good question. So when it, it, the, something that's learned and then immediately forgotten in, in maybe first year, second year uh, uh, medical school is that a state called sepsis, where we, we have an active bacterial infection in our system, that will actually cause our, our lipoprotein count and our cholesterol levels to plummet because the, the lipoproteins, not only do they shuttle energy through the body, but they also act as a, a complement of our, our uh, a, or, or an element of our, our innate immune response. And when we say like if somebody has an E. coli infection, E. coli, the bacterial coat that surrounds it, sheds this stuff called lipopolysaccharide, and every vertebrate known, if it gets exposed to lipopolysaccharide, it, it's a, a pyrinogen, it, it basically a fever-inducing agent, uh, it uh, uh, causes all kinds of inflammation. The body kind of freaks out because if we have an active infection, we, we have really serious stuff going on. And, and what happens initially in an acute infectious situation is that lipoproteins drop precipitously, cholesterol drops precipitously, because these lipoproteins attach to lipopolysaccharide and cause it to be less toxic to the liver, and it causes it to be less toxic to the rest of the system. 
Mm -hmm. the, it, and so it can allow us to clear that bacterial load without going into, in, in, another interesting side note with that, the way that people die from sepsis looks like completely uncontrolled diabetes. Blood glucose levels are high, uh, 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 the ability to control blood volume is, is dramatically compromised, um, the, the liver is pumping out glucose even though the uh, blood, blood glucose levels are elevated, we're pumping out triglycerides into the system. So the difference between acute sepsis and uh, uncontrolled diabetes, it's very difficult to tell the difference between the two of these. But if we have a, a situation where we have a low-grade infectious situation, what happens is that the body knows that it's dealing with an infection. The lipoproteins drop initially, but then over the course of time, because the lipoproteins help in clearing this infection, the body starts upregulating the production of lipoproteins and cholesterol to aid in, in removing or, or dealing more effectively with that infection. So it's good from clearing the infectious agent, but it's bad from our cardiovascular risk parameters over the long haul. So it, it's, a, it's another one of these evolutionarily conserved elements that really served us very well in the past when we dealt largely with acute infections, but when we have chronic infections due to gut permeability, then this is a, a really significant issue. Right. It's very sneaky. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's, uh, that's awesome. Thank you for diving into that for me. Yeah, good, super good question. Um, what else, John? What's going on in Reno? You guys want to touch on? Yeah, uh, we did. We did hear I mean, a bit about. It's uh, you know the blood work stuff is. Uh, I was just gonna. I was sitting there just kind of looking something up for a second. But I mean, we we always get really confusing stuff, and I, I know this has happened to Robin. It happens to me all the time. I mean, somebody tells you one thing, and then obviously it. Uh, you know, like for example, the other day a guy shot me with a question like, "Hey, I went to see the doctor, and in 24 months." Um, since I've been, you know, following your diet stuff, my cholesterol's gone up. What should I do? And I'm like, uh, what happened in the last 24 months? Uh, in the last 24 months, he ruptured his Achilles tendon. He couldn't walk. He had a kid. He got a new job. Uh, I mean, like, he literally, like, named out these, like, 30 things. And I'm like, so you think it was the diet, huh? Um, you know, like, the guy, like, ruptured his Achilles, couldn't walk. Uh, you know, rehab was going like shit, couldn't train, gained body fat, gained... I mean, it was, like, a laundry list of things, and I'm like, it always blows me away that it's, like, it's the diet when people don't realize a lot of these things are, uh, you know, the, you know, other uh, other extraneous lifestyle. factors play. And it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, lifestyle. But also, my other question is, is, like, okay, so your, your cholesterol was high. What was your particle count? Well, I didn't get that test. Uh, what was your testosterone level? What was your fats of glucose? What was uh, what was thyroid. your insulin? Yeah. What was your thyroid? What was all this? And I was like, dude, historically, my blood sugar has always been a little high. My cholesterol has always been a little high. But um, my tri triglycerides are in the 60s and the 70s. And my insulin is like out of a count of like 7 to 25. My insulin is like a 7 or an 8 every time. So like uh, my doctor's like, well, your triglycerides are low and your insulin's uh low, but your fasted blood glucose is a little elevated and your cholesterol is a little high. So it's like what we know, you know, when Rob was talking about lipoproteins, um, you know, if, you know, like you look at all these factors and it's like, you know, but I also have 10 years of blood work that always has my fasted blood glucose a little high and my cholesterol is a little bit elevated. So 
I mean, is it as basic as like, and I was telling Kelly this, um, you know, going back and looking at it, uh, is it, you know, fiber intake? Am I, you know, on a, something like an anabolic diet where you're not necessarily consuming a lot of fibrous vegetables? Is it fiber a deal where, you know, the stuff's not clearing the stomach? Like, like there's all these little key factors that you don't know unless you go in like for something like Rob with the functional medicine and specialty health and go in and have like people that, are, are super sharp. I mean, the thing that kind of kills me a little bit with a lot of the doctors today is they went to med school and that was the information they were taught and their learning has never really progressed. And I think what Rob's really doing, which is so revolutionary, is going in and looking at things as a complete system instead of just focusing on one thing. Oh, you got high cholesterol? Here's a statin. Well, let's figure out why he has high cholesterol. And I think Rob's taking the same approach to, to health, I mean, that we take to training. I mean, you know, if somebody says to me, hey, um, you know, or you go to a lot of people, oh, I'm not very strong. Well, gain some body weight, you'll get stronger. Well, you just need to do this. No, I mean, we look at things in terms of a holistic approach, like, you know, what does your training look like? What does your diet look like? What are, what are all these key factors? I mean, if all of a sudden the training's not working and you're doing all the little things, you know what? Go get your blood work. Go get a physical. Figure out what's wrong. And, you know, we had a guy recently uh, doing the training, and he's like, you know, I'll put on some body fat. Come, uh, come to figure out that the guy's uh, thyroid was a complete mess, and now he's doing things to fix his thyroid, but he's just about to have his third kid, works a full-time job. I mean, all these other factors. So I think people... Uh, you know, see just one thing and instantly they're like, okay, because of this, like, you know, uh, for the last 70 years since uh, Ansel Key's seven, you know, seven nation deal, uh, you know, high cholesterol, too much meat. You know, it's like, oh, too much animal protein. And if you go to the doctor and your cholesterol's high, they're like, well, we're going to need you to cut back on, uh, on, uh, on dietary fats and animal proteins. And it's like, you know, like it, it's just, a, I think, uh, We've been led astray, and if we hadn't, we wouldn't have this many sick people that are literally battling for their lives on a daily basis. When, you know, Rob said it earlier in the podcast, it's uh, your body doesn't want to get fat. Your body's more consumed with starvation, and, you know, uh, if you have some severe metabolic derangement, and we spot people to, all the time that have severe metabolic derangement, and, you know, what's the key factor for it? More importantly, how do you play into it, and how do we fix it? It's not an easy question. It's not an easy process. It's not an easy answer. No, and I mean, it, I, I feel like our clinic, we're doing a really good job uh, relative to what we used to do on, on the functional medicine side, but compared to like a Chris Kresser or a Doc Parsley, we're still, honestly, uh, the algorithms that we have put together are, are kind of in the infantile stage. So, we, you know, the, the, and this is both, uh, it's very um, exciting because I think the work that we can do can be even dramatically uh, improved. But the flip side of that is that we're doing things relative to like Scripps or the Mayo Clinic or like, you know, uh, uh, any average doctor's office that is like the difference between like rubbing two sticks together for fire versus like an atomic bomb. Like, it, it, and, and we're still not nearly where I want it to be, but there, there's not even a, a remote similarity between the type of medicine that's going on at our, our clinic and what... 99.999% of, of physicians are practicing in, in Western world. That's crazy. It is, but it's a huge opportunity, you know, and, no, and uh, I mean, you know, not, not to so wax. We talk about this stuff all the time. I mean, yeah. Rob and I, you know, like, um, uh, this is, you know, a, a, you know, bi-weekly, tri-weekly conversation that Rob and I have where it's like, you know, there's so much need for this information. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and we go through it all the time. I mean, we just did our uh, three-year-old checkup with the girls and like, it was, it was amazing to sit in there and like, listen to like, you know, like, um, 
all the information, like, you know, like what, like, uh, you know, like comparison with other kids and what they do. And I, I remember the doctor asking questions like, do you exercise? Was one of the questions uh, the doctor asked the girls. And they were like, yeah, we go to, you know, gymnastics, they go to swimming, they do all these things. And they're like, so what do you eat? And Kelly's like, I, I like meat. Meat's my favorite food. And Jamie's like, I like meat. And like, it just was pretty interesting. And the, both the girls were like, I think Jamie was like 100 in height, 90 in weight. Kelly was like, uh, 90 in height, like, you know, uh, 85 in weight, and like, just like all these things. And the doctor was like, wow, they're really progressing and smart. And she's like, I really have not had a little kid tell me that they like meat. And I'm right. Like, I mean, you know, and then she's like, you know, you guys don't come visit us. Like, like you, we've had one round of antibiotics. Like they're still after me to finish up all their, uh, all, all their, um, uh, immunizations. But I, I, I went with like the 1976, which was the same, uh, immunizations that I got. So I went back and looked at 76, and that's what the girls got, and they were kind of on me about that. But I'm like, well, if I made it this far, my girls will make it this far. So, but um, it's just it's amazing to hear, like, kind of, uh, you know, because I think we're so insulated at least, because you know, like, who who are the other dads I talk to, like, you know, Rob and and you know Doc Parsley and all my other friends. Everybody's kind of in this deal, and you kind of forget that there's like this whole other world out there where yeah. people like, you know. It's like corn chips and Fritos and, you know, Diet Cokes and, Stop you know. it. I'm so hungry. <laughs> it, how it fits in. The pizza not Papa John's, you know. Yeah. Fritos on your yeah, chili cheese they pizza. Do. I mean, so so that type of I stuff. I mean, before you my did. taco. <laughs> before um, your taco. So it, it's, it, it's good and it's refreshing, so. Rob, what else is going on for you in 2015? You got any other projects going on? You know, the, the whole push is. Hello? Oh, no. We. No. We have um, dramatically increased our reach within police, military, and fire. We have a, a contract with the ATF. We have a contract with the, the Army. Um, we've been out to Quantico presenting to the FBI a bunch of times, which has been really cool, and I, I think that we're close to getting a, a contract with those folks. But, you know, the game plan is to roll this out to the masses, to have... Um, uh, uh, I'm really kind of looking at the Apple Store model I'd like about... 250 to 300 clinics um, within about two to three years that uh, use this type of methodology. And uh, if we place these things in the right locations, again, similar to the Apple Store model, uh, we'll, it, it, 85 to 90 percent of the population in the United States will be within a 20-minute drive of a clinic that knows what the fuck it's doing. And uh, yeah. uh, you know, it, uh, so that's really the big push with all this stuff is getting this risk assessment program totally buttoned up and put together, um, you know, creating the, uh, in addition to offering the, the, you know, the blood work and the risk assessment itself, then we have a certification for both strength coaches and uh, healthcare providers. Um, I really want a network and a system where, you know, currently your clients go to a doctor and typically the doctor gives them one story and then they go back to you guys as coaches and you get a different story and what we're going to do with this system is everybody's going to be certified and credentialed within this program, great quality control, and everything's going to be on the same page and we're going to have some synergy within that. So that when somebody goes to the gym and they're talking to their coach, we're getting the same story and the same type of messaging that we're getting out of the, the uh, healthcare providers. Yeah, so we have yeah. some synergy and with that. That's great. Like that's everything, man. That is... That and raising two kids and uh, trying to keep motoring at old dude jujitsu. That's that's the <laughs> fucking thing. That's all of it. Well, that sounds like an ambitious year. That sounds yeah. exciting, though. Very, very cool. Is there anywhere that people could go currently to get information on what the project? 
you know, I've done a couple of things. If they do Rob Wolf risk assessment as a search term, they'll find mm -hmm. the three cool. blog posts I did on that. But, you know, I've honestly uh, quit talking about it as much as I did before because we have not had a really seamless online interface where we can deal with people. Like, we pump another a number of people through our brick-and-mortar location here locally, but the thing is not set up to be able to, like, you know, press play and pump. 10,000 people through it today, and that's really what we're what we're working towards, and we're hoping to have all of those systems hammered out by about May or June. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I can totally appreciate that because of the complexity of what you guys are working with. You want to put something out there that you're sure, you know, I mean, shit, we've gone through several websites. We know how difficult it is. You want an interface that is just going to represent, you know, your brand and represent what what you have to offer and make sure it's integrated. Yeah, That's... and you know, more, more than anything else, the goal is that, like, if you guys uh, sent your parents or grandparents to this site, they got their blood work, uh, when, when they get the, the report, the, the detailed report and the uh, prescriptive elements should be so easy to understand, so easy to implement, that it doesn't then create a phone call to you guys or to me it's like, hey, I just got my blood work. What does this mean? Like, because mm -hmm. I get that all the time. You know, people go out and get blood work, and then they have no fucking idea what it means. The goal with this is that, you know, with, with a, a reasonably intelligent person, uh, five minutes of reading the report, they will know what their risk profile is for, like, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, some types of cancers, and they will know an action plan to move towards their goals, and that will not then require, you know, additional input from, from right. someone like me or someone like you guys. And so that's the, yeah. the goal with this thing, and that's really going to be the gold standard that I hold this thing to if we succeed or fail on it. Like, a, I, would, I would call it a failure if somebody goes through the program and then they still need to get some sort of follow-up from someone, you know, to be like, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Yeah, sort of giving them that empowerment, empowering them to kind of be proactive from the get-go. That's absolutely, great. yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't really have much more. If you guys want, to, if you have anything else we want to touch on, <clears throat> um, I, I had a question. I don't know what that eye caveman show is. Just kind of backing up. So, I was curious, Rob, when you were talking about that, if uh, was it just the fact that you lost that weight, eighteen pounds, like? Uh, relevant to like your height and age that fucked you up so bad or were you restricted to it, it certain was, foods that messed you up? I mean, we, we didn't have any food. We didn't we, have we any. Were, we were I mean, dropped that... off uh, outside of... Yeah, Texas. explain it, Rob. Rob, Rob. I was going to say, take him through like what happened because it's a pretty episode. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I was shot this thing from the Discovery Channel and they're like, hey, would you be interested in doing this reality show? It's called iCaveman. We basically give you guys some training and you get a couple of experts in, in things like primitive skills uh, usage, you know, like stone tools and stuff, but it's going to be a mixed bag. Some people from, like, you know, L.A., some, so a couple of people that are kind of survival experts. Um, we drop you off somewhere, and you need to live for... It, originally, it was going to be six weeks at, out in the boondocks, and originally what they said is that it was going to be Tennessee or North Texas. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's a slam dunk. There's armadillos and scorpions. <laughs> I'm suddenly thinking of, like, deliverance or something uh, if you're out in the woods. Close, but, but, you know, uh, uh, those areas have a lot of food, like, year-round. Like, it, it's not that hard to forage for food. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give this thing a shot. And then uh, we, we were maybe two weeks out from the, the thing going, and then they shot us an update, and they were like, 
So yeah, it's not going to be North Texas, it's going to be Colorado. And this was uh, happening the first week of June, and th this area in Colorado was still under like four feet of snow. And so I was like, I'm going to fucking starve. Like, there's not going to be anything to eat. So I almost bailed on it, but my wife was like, dude, when are, when are you ever going to get an opportunity to do this? It'll be awesome. Go do it. And, it. and it was awesome in a lot of ways, but they dropped us off out in the middle of nowhere. We were given some, uh, 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 you know, period piece clothes that, that basically, you know, like Native Americans would wear and what, what we'd found in, you know, anthropological sites indicative of, a, you know, hunter-gatherer garb. And we had some chert and some flint and uh, everything was cold and wet. Uh, daytime highs were in the 40s. Nighttime lows were in the low 20s. Uh, the first night that we were there, it snowed and, uh, you know, like sleeted, snowed and rained. Um, we managed to get a fire started. I actually got the fire started on, on day one because I'm a, I'm a coward, and I knew that getting a fire started was going to be really hard. Um, for three weeks, I practiced like five hours a day building a fire kit from, from Stone Tools uh, because, I again, I'm a coward and I don't like to suffer. So I, I practiced ahead of time. And even it, with, with that said, because every single stitch of, of grass and wood and, and twigs was wet because it had been under snow two weeks previously. It was a bastard to get the fire going. So we got the fire going. Um, we started trying to forage around and find stuff. Uh, we were at an elevation. We were at 8,500 feet in Steamboat Springs in in early June, and there was just no food there. There were no crustaceans. There were no fish. There were no salamanders. There were no frogs. There was nothing. And uh, over the course of time, we built some atlatls. And we had some near misses getting some elk. And then on uh, day 10, um, uh, I, we, we actually had a very small camera crew, which is part of the reason why we succeeded. The earlier hunting expeditions had a full camera crew with them, and they ended up making all kinds of noise and cast all kinds of scent and everything. And so they, they kind of fucked that up. But on uh, day 10, I killed a 650-pound elk with a hand-thrown spear. And nice. I, ate, I ate its liver about um, 20 minutes after that, but you know. Well, you have to. You, that you have is to. the you most badass thing. Smear, smear the blood in you your face, dance well, around. Well, so, I mean, that's, so that's let Rob, Hey, so let Rob preface this that they went back and they have what, what, what's the registry for animals taken down? It's like the Lewis and. Uh, oh, it, it, the Lewis and Clark deal. So, yeah. like, um, you know, like there's a. There's a uh, you know, what's the largest animal ever taken with a 22 long rifle? What's the largest animal ever taken with, like, a 270 Remington rifle or whatever? And then they have it in archery and all this stuff. And apparently there is a registry on this with um, with uh, an atlatl. And apparently I, I still have the world record on the largest land animal taken with an atlatl in what, what they think may be since like the late Paleolithic. Like there's never been a larger animal taken with an atlatl. So. So, oh my so god. Rob Wolf took <laughs> That's cool, dude. And if you Google, it's like basically it's like a big lawn dart. And he took this thing down, and like that's the biggest animal that's been taken Bro, down I'm, since. I'm like not going to bullshit you. Uh, <laughs> I don't care about all of your your infamy and all your accolades. That is the coolest yeah. thing about you. I don't How care. How far? Hang on, wait, wait, let's let's get. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Is it's, this point blank? You're trying to get technical. Well, yeah, was, like are you hiding? Thirty-five. It was a thirty-five to forty-yard shot, and you know that's the, pretty impressive. I cannot believe I was wasting all that time talking about that's, cholesterol. That's hard and enough to do with a bow. 
He got it in the neck, didn't, didn't he? Yeah. Get it in the neck. I, I was. You got a dart. You got a dart. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, the, the dart. It, imagine an arrow that's about seven feet long, and it and it has a giant um, flint tip on the end, and you've got a like a highlight launcher that you hold in your hand that that generates you know some some leverage and stores some kinetic energy in the thing. The first throw that I huffed at it went high and went over a tip, but because we were downwind. And with the sun behind us, the animals couldn't smell us and they couldn't see us. But this dart goes sailing over it silently, essentially. And the animals, like, picked their heads up and looked. And they're kind of like, ah, something's a little up. But, you know, it, it wasn't anything super disturbing for them. And then I was going for the second shot, and I only had two darts. And uh, I was definitely the best positioned person there. Uh, Morgan Spurlock, actually, who, you know, from uh, Super Size yeah. Me, he was on the show. He threw his two darts and he hit an animal twice in the ass with it, but he threw them uh, w without sufficient force, and they just bounced off. <laughs> so he actually hit two, uh, the, the same animal twice, but it didn't do anything with them. So, it, and it's a really weird thing. Like, you want to throw these things hard, but you have to throw them smooth. Otherwise, like, they basically, you huck it as hard as you can, and it goes six feet in front of you and sticks in the ground. So, it, again, because I'm a coward... Uh, the three or four weeks before I went and did this thing, I made an atlatl by hand, both the, the launcher and the atlatl darts. And I, when I wasn't practicing making fire, I was practicing with my atlatl deal. So I, I actually was reasonably good with this thing, but the first shot went high over the hip. The second shot I was aiming for its front shoulder, and that went a little high, and it hit it in the neck. And because this thing is seven feet long when the animal would try to put its its neck down, it would basically jam the, the dart up into its carotid artery and it severed the carotid artery and it ended up bleeding out pretty quickly. So And then you guys yeah. butchered it with stone tools, which we is even better. The entire thing with stone tools. So they got stone us literally tools. homemade stone tools and then they, they skinned it and Rob got in there. But uh, I just trip out the fact that Rob Wolf took down the largest land animal since Paleolithic era in uh, fucking North America. With an atlatl. With a fucking atlatl. <laughs> with a fucking atlatl. I don't know what an Because I like to say I've taken down some animals. I'm well, I mean, I'm no, so... so, so and I'm talking just, ladies. Ladies. Just, <laughs> Just know that I uh, have had the opportunity to hunt with Rob Wolf, and there's a reason that Rob's nickname is the Harbinger of Death. <laughs> so last year about this time, Rob and I went on a hunting trip, and uh, I'll just say that Rob's nickname was fucking Harbinger of Death. Like, he brings it. Yeah. Like, I've never in my life, like, we pulled up and we're like, oh, those all Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at an atlatl right now, and for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's basically a... A, a lawn dart. Yeah, it's like a... I don't, I've never seen a lawn dart, though. It's like a spear with uh, sort of just, like, a slight attachment. It's, like, yeah, not it's, mechanical, really. It's basically, it's a sling around the end, yeah. and you, you, pull, you propel it. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, this is amazing. Um, Wow, I don't think we can top that story. That's about the the best thing I've I've heard ever. So not not only is Rob the paleo guy, he's also the fucking hunter take. take and also down. my and personal pretty, hero. And pretty good with a two seventy. So. Oh, thank you, thank you. Hey, he, here's here's a possibly little interesting sideline with with that whole story. Um, so we had literally starved for eighteen days, and the they had some anthropologists there, or not eighteen days, eight days up until this point, eight, eight to ten days. Um, we, they were estimating that with the firewood gathering that we were doing, collecting water, and uh, uh, trying to hunt, and also I, I, I got reasonably good at putting together these Paiute deadfall traps, trying to catch mice and other little critters, but there just literally were none of them out. I don't think any of them were out of their burrows yet. But they estimated we were burning probably about 4,500 calories a day 
and like the only things that we were eating were it, it, it was greens. Like we had greens. There were a couple of tiny little snails that we we found on some trees. Uh, we caught one frog. We we caught like two two fish between ten people. But for all intents and purposes, we we starved for for uh, ten days. So we killed this animal, and I was just getting ready to start eating the liver on this thing, and I was like, everybody stop. And they're like, what? what? What's up? And I'm like, we've got we, we we did blood work before the show, and then we had to do blood work after the show. But I was like, this is we we have to do blood work now because it's going to skew things after we've eaten. We need to do blood work now, and then we need to do blood work at the end of the show. And so we had to wait another four hours to eat because that's how long it took us to to haul all the shit back to camp. And when they were taking my blood glucose level, they took it like six times. Uh, normal blood glucose levels are like you know 85 to 90, maybe 80 or so. Most people start feeling hypoglycemic if it gets down in the 70s. Um, my blood glucose was 33. Wow. Because I, I was in a, a starvation keto adaptation. I actually went into that whole thing keto adapted because I knew we were going to starve. And so I ate like crazy. I actually gained some body fat uh, eating ketogenically, which that kind of answers one of those questions. Can you gain body fat on a ketogenic diet? Yes, you can if you, you do it the way that I did. But I knew that we were going to starve in the process of starvation. The first three days is basically entering into ketosis. So I started in ketosis. So I didn't have that whole fucked up period that the, the other folks had the, the first couple of days. Yeah. But um, the, the doctors were stupefied that my blood glucose was that low. And other people had kind of lowish blood glucose, like 60 and stuff like that. But mine was usually in um, starvation ketosis when they monitor blood glucose. It doesn't get that low until somebody's been starving for like 20 days. But again, I kind of primed the pump with the ketogenic diet before going into that. Well, you just do everything better than... No, I'm a, no. here's the deal. I'm a coward. <laughs> you don't like to suffer, so I. No, your humility. No, your humility is very. It's very nice, but oh, that's yeah. an, that's an amazing feat. What a what a cool experience, and probably one you wish you would never have again. So. No, that's a funny. That's a funny thing. I mean, if if you had somewhat consistent food, it was amazing because you you didn't have any multitasking. When you got up in the day, you had like, okay, I'm going to do this, and if it takes me six hours, it takes me six hours, and you you yeah. just uh, chipped away at it. And I, you know, I never played professional sports. I was never in in like the seals or anything. But people that talking to John, talking to the the dudes in the teams, you know that that camaraderie that you get from being with people that close. Like it was really, it was crazy. Like one minute, literally, I would be so angry with someone, I wanted to fucking kill them. I mean, yeah. just like blind rage. And then two minutes later, we would be rolling on the ground laughing. And the unfortunate thing is that the the way that they edited this whole thing, you know, it was just like dr whatever drama was there, that's all that was carried out. And there was a lot of really touching, funny shit that happened that, that never made it into the, the main show. But, it, you know, it was um, it was really appealing in some ways. Like if you had a stable food source but you, you didn't have to fuck around with email and social media, I was like, this is money. So, yeah. 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 That's that's super cool. Well, we'll give we'll link that up and see if people can nice. look look at clips and stuff. That's super cool. Nice. Um, well, I think guys, we've run uh, as we usually do with Rob, which we lovingly do, is Have run a, way yeah. way over. So we're through the intro. What's next? We're through. <laughs> <laughs> so we might make this a two parter, maybe just a one parter, but either way, so much good information here, Rob. We can't thank you enough for joining us again. 
thanks, guys. Huge honor being on. I really, really enjoy it. You guys are doing great work. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Yeah, and I guess if there's no one, like, this might be a possibility. Like, Rob just scratched the tip of a lot of the stuff he has on his site. Like, go yeah. go to his site, go to his blog. There's tons and tons Listen of information. Listen to his Rob, podcast. Rob probably has uh, one of the deepest uh, archives of blog. Like, if there's anything yeah. Yeah. nutrition-related or training or anything, I usually just enter whatever I want, Rob Wolf. Yeah. And like and there'll be like, like three in articles. 2007, yeah. there was a 27 part mm-hmm. series on this, and I'm like, like things that like I and, and I actually before I used to just call Rob on the phone, I'm like, hey Rob, explain this to me, and then I actually just started googling his site, and then yeah. when I call him, I'm like, hey, I was dealing with this, and I talked to him, he's like, oh yeah, I worked on that. I'm like, yeah, I already read it, dude. Uh-huh. So like Rob, and then uh, he has an incredible podcast, which yeah. I've been fortunate to be on a couple times, and um, has incredible guests, and really uh, from everything from like. Uh, psychology to performance yes. to food to, to ath- I mean, Rob is a really, really uh, uh, deep, deep, deep uh, pull for people. So uh, yeah, I know that our podcast can be like sort of all over the place, but we we have fifty percent substance, fifty percent like fluff. But uh, I, you know, I, I can't help but say like Rob's podcast is is at least ninety percent actual substance. So um, if anybody's looking for something dense and and really, really informative, check it out for sure. And uh, it, just to let folks know, the one and only forum that I spend any time on on the interwebs is the uh, Power Athlete Forum. So if ah, you haven't yes. signed up for the Power Athlete uh, uh, Field Strong program, get on it. That's amazing. I'm going to use that sound well, no, bite. It's, it's true. Like uh, Rob will come in there and just drop people. And like I know they're like people are reading it and they're like, holy shit, I can't believe Rob Wolf is, uh, is on here. And I'm like... It's it's cool. I'm I'm stoked that Rob gets on there and uh, definitely. It's the only forum on the internet worth being on. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's my new ringtone. Power athlete HQ. That's amazing. Well, the uh, UPS truck is doing wheelies out front right now, nice. very loudly. So so we're gonna cut it here, guys. Um, again, thanks again, and uh, we'll speak to everyone next week. Awesome. Take care, guys. See you. Thanks. Don't forget to head over to Rob's website, robwolf.com, for more content and resources than you could ever imagine. Oh, and check out his podcast, The Paleo Solution. I have, and I can tell you firsthand, it is highly informative and just another great nutrition and training resource. 2015 is here, and that means that CrossFit football is setting sail for a city near or near-ish you. Don't forget to go to www.crossfitfootball.com backslash events to see when the crew will be heading your way. We're still adding to the list of locations, so be patient as dates and locations are being updated regularly. And why aren't you on the Field Strong program yet? You heard it from the source. The one and only forum that I spend any time on on the interwebs is the uh, Power Athlete Forum. Visit www.powerathlethq.com for more information on membership, programming, and, of course, our forums. Remember, Rob Wolf is waiting for you on the other side. Just standing here in my underwear. Speaking of underwear, Valentine's weekend has arrived, and that means swag sales. As promised, we will be discounting our apparel and outfitting you and your sweetheart slash training partner slash inflatable companion with the latest power athlete fashion. Take advantage of the savings all weekend at shop.powerathletehq.com. Until next week, bye!